Welcome to today's episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Amelia. And I'm Maddie. And we are bringing you some exercise for your brain today. Oh, yes, we are. Today we are speaking with Associate Professor Simon Rosenbaum from UNSW Sydney and the Black Dog Institute. Simon's research looks at the role of physical activity and exercise in mental health from a gazillion different viewpoints and from the individual and the changes within the individual to amazing kind of society level. And we managed to pick his brain about a lot of that in today's episode. Indeed. He is a exercise physiologist. Ah. Yeah. So not a psychologist, but I think that's actually part of the reason I really enjoy today's conversation mm. because he it was, was com- a multidisciplinary episode. Exactly. He was coming from the perspective of someone who is familiar with mental health and familiar with how physical activity can actually play a big role in mental health and mental ill health as well. Mm-hmm. So before we get started, don't worry, we're not here to say that exercise is going to make mental health treatment redundant. That's not what we're here for. Certainly not. No, no, no. But I think today's episode made me think about the different ways that we might actually be able to use physical activity as a way to enhance people's mental health. Yeah, and their journey through the system as well, not necessarily while they're in the armchair next to you as a clinician, but how we can harness the benefits of exercise for all different sorts of reasons Mm. to empower somebody and improve their well-being. He dispels a few myths about exercise as well, which is very helpful about the role of exercise in weight loss and what exercise means for different people. So Simon dispels the myth that exercise is for weight loss. Indulge me for a minute. One thing that Simon mentioned, uh, which really stood out for me, is exercise can be really beneficial for us for a lot of reasons unlikely to make a significant impact on weight loss. Mm. And this is a story we've been sold for many, many years. And the interesting thing is that we've been sold that message on the basis of probably well-conducted studies that look at the benefits of physical activity for weight loss, all funded by the fast food and sugar-sweetened beverage industry. That's probably a bit of a generalization, but it seems quite clear when you dig into it that exercise isn't necessarily a huge player in the weight loss game and we've been told to believe that because people want us to keep eating fast foods, convenient foods and to be drinking Fanta. Anyway, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, but we do kind of touch on it a bit. The idea that exercise is only for weight loss can actually lead to people feeling less motivated to engage with it because it's been put in the weight loss box and Mm. not the box for someone to feel good or to get stronger or socialize and things like that. And Simon really brings those arguments to the fore. Exactly. I think it's a real shame that exercise has such a strong weight loss, look good in active wear focus and that's detracted our attention from all of the benefits it can have for other areas Mm. of our lives and that's what we speak about with Simon among many many other things which we're very excited to bring to you now. Welcome to the podcast Simon it's it's wonderful to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. So I think first off let's talk about the role of physical activity or physical inactivity in mental health. What do we know about this so far? Yeah, so we know that 
there's a, a complicated relationship between movement and, and how we feel um, and also inactivity, so a lack of movement contributing to, to developing symptoms um, of a range of disorders, whether it's depression or anxiety, trauma. Um, we know that how much we move has a big impact on how we feel. So I would guess then that relationship works in two ways. One, the more we move, the better we feel. And then also the less we move, the worse we feel. Why don't we start with the more negative spin of that? How does inactivity or not moving affect our mental health? Yeah, good question. So inactivity is absolutely a risk factor for developing symptoms, but we've also got to think that people who are experiencing high levels of, of symptoms and distress are less likely to move. And so it's kind of this complicated relationship. And one of the things that I just want to say really early on is that we've got to be really careful when we talk about this and when we, you know, in the media and we communicate to the public about the, the relationship between exercise. I think often it puts the onus on the individual and almost uh, describes people as a failure or, you know, or says that, look, if, if you just go for a walk or you just do some push-ups, you're going to feel better and it will cure your depression. Of course, that's not true. Yeah. And so I really want to stress that, first of all, people need existing treatments and exercise will not cure all mental illness. And so we're, we're not saying that at all. What we're saying is that, and what the evidence tells us, is that it can be a part of treatment and it can actually contribute to helping people feel better. But just acknowledging really early on that the worse someone's symptoms and the worse someone is, the less likely they are to be able to engage in exercise. We don't have the right support structures. We don't have the right systems in place. Um, and then we also need to consider things like poverty, social capital, you know, the opportunity to access exercise services, um, which all has a has a role in actually alienating the most vulnerable. Um, I think I've just hijacked that question completely, no, but I think it's just really important up front to get that is. out. Yeah, um, I'd like to continue with the hijacking of that question uh, <laughs> in that it almost sounds like the ability to take time out of your life and exercise is almost a privilege. Yes. Do you agree with that? Perfect. Perfect wording. I would say that exercise in the, the formal definition of the word, which is deliberate movement or deliberate physical activity for the point of improving health or fitness, is absolutely a privilege. And it's not only a privilege, but it's a privilege of the fortunate among us. You know, there's financial aspects. If you have caring responsibilities, if you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have footpaths or where it's not safe to walk outside, we've got to keep that in mind when we have these campaigns saying, hey, just go for a walk and you're going to feel better. Mm. That's actually not possible for everyone. And so I think the failure is not on the individual. The failure is on us providing services, systems and structures to support people to be able to make the choice to get active. Sure. One thing you mentioned as well in that answer was around the fact that it certainly is a contributing factor. It's not a cure-all, though, which I'm a little relieved about as a psychologist. <laughs> may have put me out of a job if it solved every problem. I'm interested to know, you know, we've talked about the this relationship operating in two directions. Inactivity can make symptoms worse, but when you're feeling quite depressed or you have quite severe symptoms of trauma or an anxiety disorder – it's highly unlikely that you're feeling capable to get out and go for a walk or a run or something like that. What are we talking about here in terms of inactivity and how, how significant a risk that is? Sure. So, I mean, inactivity itself is, is one of the, the leading risk factors for all non-communicable diseases. Um, so if we think not only mental health, but diabetes, obesity, and they those conditions go hand in hand with poor mental health. Sure. So there's a, a cycle there. Physical inactivity is one of the leading contributors. On the flip side of that, we know that Physical activity, performing, you know, engaging in physical activities is you know, often described as the cornerstone of treatment and prevention of non-communicable diseases. And so there's a, a big role there. In terms of the, the magnitude, some of the, the statistics, you know, the, 
we've got, we know that if we got the population moving by as little as an extra 60 minutes per week of physical activity, and that's regardless of the intensity or the type, we would prevent somewhere between 12 and 17% of incident cases of depression globally. Oh my so now, word. That's an enormous number. Yeah, it's, it's huge. So they were, that's sort of taking evidence from two big reviews um, published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2019. And they, you know, showed that this is a, and there's also similar data with anxiety. It's not quite to the same extent, but um, we know that this can be used for prevention as well. It's not just treatment. But again, the challenge is how do we target the most vulnerable exactly. and those that need it the most? Yeah, exactly. Is there almost an argument to be made that uh, physical activity has a stronger or more valuable role as almost a preventative tool rather than an intervention tool in that case then? Tricky. Possibly, if you think about societal public health benefits, mm. absolutely. But I think also, I mean, for me, what I'm most interested in with my work is the most vulnerable. Yep. So I've done a lot of work in, in Bangladesh in the Rohingya community and with refugee populations where, you know, we probably think that's the last thing that they need is, is to be worried about. But actually what's interesting in those contexts is that, yes, you can have basic services, you can have food, shelter, and those sorts of things, but people often lack meaning and something to do, and particularly children. And so there's a big opportunity, even in those communities, and some of the work that we've done shows that they actually naturally turn to movement and exercise because of the benefits. And it's not just the individual benefits, but the, the social benefits, providing meaning, providing structure. One of the, the biggest events in the camp, for example, would be a soccer match where thousands of people would come to watch that match. And so that's not just the players, but it's also everything that's happening around that and that sense of community and fostering that social cohesion. Mm, interesting. When I was thinking about some questions to ask you, that speaks to one of them that I, I think I will follow up with later is that there's probably a lot of what we call mechanisms between increasing activity and the psychological benefits, social, psychological, and then also some of the actual physical benefits as well, which is super interesting. But that's probably a useful opportunity to then ask you when we talk about people who may be suffering from mental illness, whether it be a depressive episode or anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, what does harnessing the benefits of physical activity for that population look like? What kinds of treatments exist? Great question. Um, what does it look like? It looks different for every person. That's what I would say. So first of all, a couple of things we should just chuck out nice mm. and early about exercise. The <laughs> biggest thing we need to get over is the link between exercise and weight loss it's it's damaging it does us no good mm. it sends the wrong message yep. it's and the reason being one it's the main reason people want to exercise but yeah. we also know that the contribution of exercise to weight loss is absolutely minimal in the absence of dietary change so in other words if you're trying to lose weight don't worry about focusing on exercise focus on your diet now that's really problematic when we keep putting people in these exercise programs measuring them their weight doesn't change and they become demotivated and they're not interested now that shifts the focus away from what's actually happening which is people feeling better increasing self-efficacy increasing their motivation feeling better about their day um being, getting stronger being able to walk up a flight of stairs without getting puffed and all those little things you know being able to engage with the community going for a walk you know, i remember one story of a, a patient i worked with at the hospital in our trial he had you know severe PTSD started exercising that gave him a bit of confidence to then start walking again he then felt a bit fitter so he re he thought maybe he'd go back and play golf so he then reconnected with his mate so he used to play golf with and then that had a big impact on his relationship with his wife because suddenly he was you know had that social connection that social support now that's not the exercise that's triggered that but that's been a you know part of that cascade and that reaction 
So again, I think I've wandered away from the question, but you know, thinking about how we're promoting this and how we're talking about this mm. um, and ensuring that actually where people are aware of the benefits and why they want to exercise. So the, the question was, sorry, I'm coming back what to it. What do they look um, like? Yeah. Uh, what do they look like? So, okay, for example, if someone's an inpatient having a, a severe um, episode with really low symptoms, they're going to need a high level of support. And so we've really got to match the level of support the same way as we would with psychological interventions. We've got to match the level of support with the need of that individual. So if someone's in an inpatient setting, they're likely going to need dedicated one-on-one support with a, what the evidence tells us, a university-qualified exercise professional. Um, and that's either an exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist. So it's someone with tertiary training in behavior change and in evidence-based practice around motivation, physical activity. So it matches the, the, what we call the exercise prescription to the needs of that individual. Then you might, on the other end, you might have people that are going to be okay with actually just needing a little bit of social support to engage in activity. Mm-hmm. One of the trials, one of my PhD students, Grace McEwen, is doing some really interesting work using Facebook groups. And we essentially recruit, uh, we're focusing on, a, on emergency service workers, so either with PTSD or at high risk of PTSD. We recruit them and uh, their loved one. So whether it's a spouse, a partner, a friend, and we give them Fitbits, put them in a closed Facebook group, provide a little bit of support, a little bit of motivation. We often pair the emergency service workers off against the carers and have a step challenge around okay. Fitbits. And and it's really about building that social support and that engagement. And for some people, that's enough to actually get them moving to them, want to engage and trigger that cascade. So although that's an exercise program, it's very different to a one-on-one in a gym helping someone lift some weights. So it can look very, very different for different people. But the key point is that we need to match the level of support to the the needs of the individual. And their resources, Mm -hmm. sure. It definitely sounds like you need to formulate exactly what every different person needs in terms of their exercise prescription, as you said. I wonder if that also comes down to perhaps the difference between cardiovascular exercise and resistance training, for instance. The difference is which one's going to work for the individual rather than which one is more effective or is the evidence base stronger for one rather than the other? Yeah, great point. So the the evidence base is stronger for aerobic exercise. That's not because aerobic exercise is more effective. It's because we have more evidence for aerobic exercise. Oh. <laughs> um, if I, that makes sense. I can think of some other treatments that apply. It's the most evidence based because it's the most researched. Exactly. So, but I can explain it really easily because it's the easiest one to do. If you, let's say you're, um, you know, you want to run a little bit, a small study in an inpatient setting, for example, you don't necessarily have access to a gym, access to an exercise physiologist, access to the safety protocols, but you can take people for a walk. So you'll be able to do that study looking at the effect of walking or running because aerobic exercise is accessible. It's easy to do. It doesn't mean it's better. And I think for me personally, based on the, the clinical work that I did, you know, resistance training was hugely effective, underutilized. The reason being is if you think about someone who's really demotivated, really unwell, you go to their room and say, hey, let's go for a walk for half an hour. You know, I was often met with, how about you piss off out of my room, which is Uh fair enough. But if you kind of went in with a TheraBand or an elastic band or some weights and you're like, we're going to do 10 bicep curls and I'm going to leave you alone, and that takes 30 seconds, they would often be willing to do it. And so there is and there are physiological effects, and we've got some good evidence now. So Matt Herring's group in the UK have done some some great reviews looking at resistance training and the antidepressive effects and the anxiolytic benefits of resistance training. And the effect sizes are comparable. So, you know, it really is another option. Um, and I just think from a practical perspective, resistance training is almost like a, a gateway into other forms of activity. Great. Firstly, it's really encouraging to know that 
it doesn't seem to matter based on what we know currently what kind of exercise it kind of just matters that there is some I think for any clinicians who are practicing any sort of graded approach to achieving a goal it can be as simple as starting with some bicep curls sitting on the side of the bed to moving up to a half hour walk outside or something so it gives people I think a lot of flexibility if they feel comfortable practicing in that domain and then my follow-up question is you mentioned that the effect sizes are comparable between different types of interventions and I'm really interested to know when we talk about looking at clinical trials people obviously want to show that their treatment has some sort of statistically significant improvement above a control group but it's also important to, to show that the size of that improvement is actually meaningful speaking about effect sizes it is what you've done in terms of how large are these effects how large are they Oh, there's so many things I'd just talk for hours on this. I need to, to rip through it. I'm just going to take you back to the first point you made about yeah. the, there's no ideal program. That's true, but there is, there is actually the ideal program. That's the program that the participant's going to enjoy. Yeah, nice. And the enjoyment is absolutely critical because if we, there's no point us saying, you know, for example, if you told me I've got to run every day, I'm not going to do it. I don't enjoy running. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. No, so what type of activities do you guys enjoy? I'm a weightlifter. I do kickboxing. <laughs> There we go. And so if you think about yourself, if, you know, I was telling you, right, we're going to run every day, it's not going to happen. So we've got to keep that in mind and find that, you know, that, that enjoyment is critical. And it's also linked to someone's experience with activity early in life, particularly in PE classes. There's some good data there, which is really interesting. If someone's had a, a bad experience in PE at school oh. and you're looking shocked there. Oh, I hated PE. Hated it. Yeah. I have a traumatic memory of a beat test. And I think that's why I don't <laughs> like running anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Or never did. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Keep that in yeah, mind. That's yeah. you know, that's a factor. And so we've got to keep that in mind. And also if people have had potentially weight issues or they were bullied or something, then that's they're gonna have a really, you know, challenging relationship with the idea of exercise. Yeah. And it's gonna mean something very different. So that's probably the first point. The second point around the effect size, if people are interested in this topic and the debate over the effect sizes, there has been a lot of debate within the exercise literature around the under you know, underestimating the effect size based on how a lot of the meta analyses were done. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much detail you want to get into around this, but there was a Cochrane review in 2012 or 2014, I think it was, the most recent Cochrane review, which really underestimated the effect size. And it had to do with the comparisons that they were including. And it's not fair to, you know, if you're going to look at an intervention, comparing it to a certain type of control group, as opposed to comparing it to to medication or comparing it to usual care, because then what you're expecting is an effect size over and above usual care. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. So there's been some work done since actually re-looking at that evidence base. And we published a review in 2016 led by my, my friend and colleague Felipe Schuch in Brazil, where we looked at the impact of publication bias and other impacts on the exercise and depression literature and essentially showed that we were really underestimating the overall effect size. That's interesting. This is an area of my interest as well, Simon, but I think we generally find that evidence of publication bias means that we're overestimating the effects. So it's interesting to learn that it might operate in the reverse direction in this group of studies. Holding it to its highest standard, I would guess, is the effect of some sort of exercise intervention over and above medication or psychotherapy. What do we know briefly about what's found in those kind of comparative trials? So we do have, again, there's really robust evidence around this. But what I would say is that I know that there are 
purists and people that do efficacy research that would like to you know compare these interventions head to head and i understand that and i can see the benefits particularly from the mechanistic point of view to understand the mechanisms and also you know even dismantling studies to, to sort of unpack the direct impact of movement versus social support sure. versus what's actually happening there but what i would say from a practical perspective is actually it's hard to imagine why we would ever withhold usual care and why we wouldn't actually just think about exercise as an augmentation strategy to usual care for two reasons one mental illness is associated with you know premature mortality mm-hmm. people are dying from premature heart disease obesity diabetes they go hand in hand with mental illness that's preventable it's largely preventable sort of lifestyle based approaches so there's actually if we know that someone Someone seeking mental health treatment or someone experiencing mental health symptoms is at high risk of poor physical health. Immediately, they should be considered warranting access to evidence-based lifestyle interventions, exercise, diet, sleep, smoking. So there's no reason to, to withhold that for the physical health benefits. But then if we actually look at the evidence around mental health, you know, that's a bonus as well. So it's, I, I don't see why comparing these, you know, if someone's getting talking-based therapy, they should actually immediately, as part of that, that should trigger access to evidence-based exercise, diet, support. I love that. It sounds like a very well-rounded approach as well, targeting all aspects of someone's health that might be contributing to their mental illness rather than just restricting it to perhaps the more typical clinician-focused side of things and more of a multidisciplinary team Mm. could actually result in better outcomes. Yeah, and it's also, if we think about prevention, so I mean using trauma as an example, um, the the wait time for trauma-focused CBT, for example, is, is enormous. We're talking months. Now, in that, in the meantime, if as soon as someone was seeking help and that triggered a referral, you could actually, why can't we refer people immediately to an exercise intervention in that waiting period? Best case scenario, you prevent the decline in physical health. You prevent, you know, potentially the obesity. You improve someone's sleep. You improve someone's health outcomes. You know, sorry, that's worst case scenario. Yeah. Best yeah. case scenario, you do that you in addition to alleviating some of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if we think about the, the cost savings and the burden on the health service, and I think part of it is to do with these silos that we have in terms of physical health, mental health, Certainly. trying to break those down. It sounds like a really sensible, smart, also cheaper stepped care option than the one we have now. If we do have a successful stepped care. Yeah. <laughs> what am I saying? It's better than nothing. <laughs> So before you mentioned some of the research designs that help us address things like what are the mechanisms, that's something that we've touched upon as we've gone through. So if I were to try and pull some of them out, it sounds like people engaging in certain types of exercise, particularly I would guess team sport, there's the aspect of social connectedness and what comes with that, which we know is really important, particularly for mood disorders. There is also the act of actually kind of just doing something. We know that behavioural activation is incredibly important, making sure that people are getting up, they're doing something, reverse sitting around feeling hopeless, um, to put it simply. What are some of the other mechanisms, perhaps even some of the potential physical, biological mechanisms that you haven't yet touched upon? So, I mean, this, this isn't my area of expertise at all, but, but, but essentially some of the key ones are neuroplasticity. So particularly hippocampal neurogenesis has been shown to, to, to be a factor. Um, reducing uh, inflammation. So we know, again, inflammation is key, particularly with that link with obesity and diabetes. That's a, a critical factor. Mm-hmm. Um, increasing resilience to oxidative stress is mm-hmm. another factor. Um, so that there's a range, but then, as you said, self-esteem, social support, self-efficacy, all those other factors that are, that are likely to play a role. It would be very um, hard to disentangle. In- yeah, and I think, you know, my interest is really from the implementation perspective, so sure. not 
uh, and I know that it's, it's, it's important that we actually do dismantle that stuff, but I think there's, there's other important questions such as actually how do we help the most vulnerable? How do we motivate them and support them to get access? Quick question. Um, those mechanism studies, were they done in humans or rats? Yeah, there's a lot of evidence in rats, but often, right. you know, I mean, <laughs> I've got a colleague who, who, who laughs at the fact that humans aren't rats and we respond a bit differently, but there are, there are, there is a lot of evidence in humans as well. And we've, we've done a little bit of work. We did a small study looking at trying to measure hippocampal neurogenesis in young people with early psychosis in response to an exercise program. Um, and interestingly, we had a, you know, I think a nearly 30% increase in cardiorespiratory fitness, but no change in hippocampal volume which was interesting, but we subsequently published a meta-analysis which did show an effect, um, so the signal of, of, of hippocampal neurogenesis in Lovely. humans. I love translational work that actually works out. <laughs> um, so we're kind of wrapping up now, and so we typically ask all of our guests a couple of questions. So one thing I'm really interested in, we might have touched on this before, but what is one misconception that you kind of see a lot of people holding about the role of physical activity and mental health? or physical activity generally? Yeah, one would be that it's uh, the main, is the link with weight loss. Yeah, that would be the yeah, first yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, the second thing I would say from the mental health professional's perspective is I've often been met with, uh, or occasionally resistance, where they sort of say, yep, we know that the physical health and the, the activity and diet and stuff is important, but we need to deal with the mental health symptoms first. Right. Um, and actually that's just not true. Um, because there is no evidence as to why that's the case. And I think it's really just a it's a default mode because that's what we're comfortable with and that's what we know. But if you think, for example, I, can just, I know we're wrapping up, but I'll be quick. But <laughs> I used to work at a, an early psychosis centre here in, in Sydney at the, the um, at South East Sydney Local Health District, and Dr Jackie Curtis has done some amazing work there around lifestyle interventions. It's called the Keeping the Body in Mind program. Um, so that we actually built a dedicated gym within the early psychosis centre. So if you think about young people who maybe weren't engaged or were finding it difficult to engage with psychologists, suddenly they could come to the centre purely to go and lift some weights with an exercise physiologist and students, and it was and it's an amazing program. Um, but one of the things there, if you think about a young person coming in crisis, um, so traditionally then they're like, okay, we need to we need to deal with that crisis and we understand that. But if they would, let's say had an appointment booked with the exercise physiologist and they came in and there was clearly a crisis, um, but we know they're safe, they're in the facility. There is no reason why they can't do the exercise session that they were booked to do and then go upstairs and, and have the treatment they need. And so I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people need to be, we need to get the mental health right first because mm. that's never going to happen. So we actually need to challenge that and say, no, we need to do this hand in hand. We can address physical health and we can address mental health at the same time. Leading on from that, it's one of the things that stuck with me from what you said and around this misconception is that it just helps with weight loss. And it does strike me that, of course, it's the one of the primary motivations for people to engage in exercise and often the increased sense of you know autonomy and self-esteem and strength and all of that stuff is actually what's really going to be helpful for people. So I really do hope that that changes. We've spoken about the mechanisms and I know that your real passion is implementation and making sure that the people who need this information and the resources to do so are able to get it. For clinicians working in the field of mental health, what's one thing you'd really like them to know or one thing you'd like them to take into account as they go about their practice? 
Yeah, so the way I think about this is you know, the sort of two different worlds that I feel kind of a part of, the sort of physical activity and sport for development and that side of things, and then the mental health world. And I think there's one thing immediately that could happen that would help, and that is, first of all, the physical activity world mental health first aid psychological first aid do that now immediately yeah. <laughs> you know accidental counselor courses those sorts of things to get some basic skills they're not meant they don't need to be mental health professionals but basic skills and then on the other side the, the mental health professionals have some basic understanding in physical activity programming physical activity prescription and the physical activity guidelines which have there were new guidelines released last year that are slightly better now that sort of we could say they're more mental health informed as opposed to just being based on cardiovascular outcomes you know the guidelines say ideally around 150 minutes per week Previously, I've seen that as a bit of a barrier to people living with mental illness because what the message sends is that if you're not achieving those guidelines, you're not getting any benefits, and that's absolutely not true. And what the guidelines have shifted now is recognizing something is better than nothing, and that's sure. the message we need to push. Any little bit of activity can be beneficial. And so I think we, we need those two worlds working together because essentially if we actually finally recognize and conceptualize physical activity as a mental health intervention, then that completely changes who's providing it, who's doing it. You know, another example from the camps in Bangladesh, I was working with a mental health team there. We had 26 mental health professionals. And when we looked at what they were doing, about 30% of everything they did in camp was organized sport. And if I think about well, what training have they had in sport or what discussions have they had in that? And of course, they studied psychology. Sport wasn't part of their training. We've done some work looking at the knowledge, attitudes, confidence of mental health professionals in this area. And there's a clear gap. Just like there is for the physical activity world, there's a gap in their knowledge around mental health, so we need to bring them together. Yeah, it's both about upskilling mental health professionals and also upskilling people who work in you know, exercise physiologists, physiotherapists. Completely. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on and getting to talk about this. If I'm being honest, I probably have more questions about so do I. the role of physical activity than when I started. <laughs> But I think that's a good thing. I don't that's know if a that's a good thing or not. It's no, a it compliment. Is. Okay, great. <laughs> it is. Great. I think it could have been a 10-episode series. I mean, I, I want to know right. about activity and sleep, activity and chronic pain. We'll save that it's for later. Endless. But, yes, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Simon. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Science of Therapy. If you were listening to this while you were on your morning walk or a little jog, well done. Mm-hmm. Hope you enjoyed getting some positive reinforcement for a half hour chunk of time exactly if you want to learn more about simon and his research head over to our website it's scienceoftherapy.com if you want to claim a little bit of continuing professional development you can do that too there's a button on the website love a button do the thing that you do when you enjoy podcasts if you did like it give it some stars subscribe, subscribe. and we'll see you next week jinx Maddie, Maddie, Maddie. <laughs>